What is up, everybody? It's Jamie Barnes, your favorite host of the Wine and Politics podcast, and we have a brand new episode ready for you today with your favorite recurring guest, Dusty Wright. He returns to the podcast to talk about Twitter files, all of the Twitter files, about Brittany Griner's release from Russian prison, and we talk about the Balenciaga scandal. We had literally so much to talk about that we broke up this episode into two different parts. So this first part, we're going to be talking specifically about the Twitter files, and part two will be the second half of our conversation. At that point in time, when we did discuss the releases, only four parts had been released, parts one, two, three, and four. And by now, it's January 9th. We have seen the rest of the parts, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12. (laughs) Those journalists have been to work since we recorded this episode. And I wanted to spend some time beforehand to give you a brief summary of each of those parts before we jump into the conversation. I won't spend too much time talking about parts one through four since we did review them with Dusty, but those were released on December 2nd, December 6th, 8th, 9th, and 12th. So jumping into part five, brief overview. Part five of the Twitter files also continued on with Trump's removal from the Twitter platform on January 8th, 2021. And these files were released on December 11th by Barry Weiss. The key takeaways from this release is that while many Twitter employees did pressure the company to ban Trump's account, others, and one in particular actually from China, felt less comfortable with this sense of total censorship. But at the end of the day, Twitter ultimately decided to ban him anyway after leaders like Yul Roth, who was the head of site integrity, and Vijaya Gaddy, who was Twitter's legal head at the time, compared keeping Trump's account active, even if he didn't technically violate anything, compared the action of keeping him active to Nazis following orders. So that's the important takeaway there. Part six was released on December 16th by Matt Taibbi, and this really captured Twitter's relationship with the FBI. Their relationship was so close that Taibbi actually refers to Twitter in this release as the FBI subsidiary. And an example of this There was a San Francisco FBI field office agent who would regularly send moderation requests to Twitter and one day sent so many that a Twitter executive actually called it a monumental undertaking when the team had completed the list of requests. Twitter also balanced content per the recommendations from a variety of governmental and quasi-governmental actors such as the FBI Department of Homeland Security, even Stanford's Election Integrity Project, and state governments. So Twitter was very closely aligned with government interests and intelligence interests. Looking at part seven, part seven of the Twitter files was released on December 19th by Michael Schellenberger, the same person who released part four. And he talks a lot about the FBI's involvement in Hunter Biden's laptop and the story that was about to be released by the New York Post. Basically, the day before that story was published, that same FBI agent sent 10 documents to Yul Roth the night before this story was going public. Also, an important note, Jim Baker, who was the deputy general counsel to Twitter and had connections to the FBI, he was actually general counsel to the FBI in a past life, he had announced in some email 
that Twitter was compensated by the FBI for what they called processing requests with over $3.4 million since 2019. That kind of tells me that Twitter was being compensated for processing those moderation requests that the FBI was funneling to them. Part eight was especially interesting. Part eight was released by Lee Fong on December 20th. It outlines how Twitter aided the Pentagon's covert PSYOP campaigns across the world. Basically, what you need to know here is that Twitter has been involved with Pentagon-backed covert operations for years, even though the company has explicitly testified to Congress that it didn't know anything about these covert operations. But for example, I think the Washington Post actually published a story on this. There was a list of 52 Arab language accounts that Twitter quote unquote whitelisted because the Pentagon used them to amplify certain messages in the Middle East. And Twitter at the very least knew of these programs, if not assisted in them back in 2017. Pretty much the Pentagon was working to shape and manipulate public opinion about our military in that part of the world specifically, and Twitter was helping them to keep it secret. Part nine, Matt Taibbi released part nine on Christmas Eve, and this really shows us and illustrates Twitter working with quote unquote other government agencies. There were a few references to OGA, other government agencies, which is basically like a code word for the CIA. So Twitter either directly or indirectly received moderation requests from other intelligence bodies like the CIA and others. And the CIA officials, we know this, they they attended at least one conference with Twitter in 2020. And along with the FBI, the quote unquote foreign influence task force, met with Twitter and other tech companies on a consistent basis. Part 10, released on December 28th, 2022, by David Zweig. He's a new reporter we haven't heard from yet. And he discusses how Twitter interfered in the COVID debate. Really what you need to know here is that memos from Twitter show that they were working with the White House to ban accounts or even just label them as misleading, even if the information was accurate and true. The White House was reportedly very angry that's in quotes, very angry that Twitter hadn't deplatformed more accounts who disagreed with the White House's COVID policy. Part 11 was released on January 3rd, so a little less than a week ago by Matt Taibbi. Parts 11 and 12 released at the same time were both focused on Twitter's relationship with the intelligence community and when it started. So he broke it out into two parts because it talks about two different time frames. So part 11 focuses on the back half of 2017, Part 12 focuses on like the summer of 2020 through present day. So I'll talk about 11 then 12. 11 talks about how when Twitter was being pressured by Congress and the media to produce quote unquote material showing some conspiracy of Russian accounts on the platform. This is around the time when everybody was talking about Russian disinformation within the presidential campaign and how Trump's 2016 election to the office was uh, illegitimate. But with this pressure, they decided to outwardly claim that they'd never remove content unless it was at their Twitter's sole discretion. But internally, their guidance, also in writing, said that they would de-platform accounts identified by intelligence agencies as a state-sponsored entity conducting cyber operations. So basically, they told the public that it would be up to Twitter to remove certain accounts or de-platform others. But in reality, they were taking guidance from the government. Lastly, part 12. 
again, this was mid-2020 through present day, shows how initially Twitter did try to resist actually fulfilling these moderation requests from the State Department, but they finally agreed to funnel the requests from the state and other agencies through the FBI. And actually, one of the FBI agents referred to the agency as the belly button of the U.S. government, which is interesting, but that's what you could find if you search for it on Twitter. And eventually, Twitter ended up taking requests from all kinds of agencies. Think of the Treasury Department, HHS, which is the House Homeland Security, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, NSA, National Security Agency, FBI, and even personal requests from politicians like Democratic Representative Adam Schiff, who asked for a journalist to be deplatformed way back when. So a lot of tea coming out of the Twitter files for a whole month. Those files released from December 2nd through January 3rd. So you can go and find a summary of all of them and links to each report on Matt Taibbi's Substack. I'll make sure to put a link to that Substack in the show notes. But yep, just wanted to give you a brief idea of what exactly is included in the Twitter files. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of me and Dusty's conversation where we really get to dive deeper into parts one, two, three, and four. And getting his perspective is always really interesting, especially since we tend to disagree on several things. With that, Dusty, welcome back to Wine and Politics. Welcome back to the Wine and Politics Podcast, where we bring two people on different points of the political spectrum, or even completely across the aisle together, and have a discussion around our current political climate and try to find common ground, or at the very least, learn something new, all while drinking wine. (laughs) Today, we are super happy to welcome back a familiar friend of the podcast, Dusty Wright. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. I'm glad to have you back. You're always a great person to have conversations with because I think both of us are pretty open-minded to what the other says. Yeah. And I think it's just a really good discussion. And so who better to bring back on than you, my friend? Yeah, it's always been fun. We've had two good discussions so far and haven't gotten in any fights, so that's good. (laughs) We're still friends. Yeah. (laughs) Which is the important thing. (laughs) I remember, and I know we said this last time, but the first time we ever did this together, I was very nervous. I was too, and then I think the first topic we did was abortion, and that was like two or three days before the Supreme Court ruling, and yeah, I was very nervous the first time. Yes, I know, but we got through it, and we were able to prove to ourselves and to each other that it's fine. We can do it. I think after like four or five sips of wine, it gets a little bit easier. Which is the point, right? (laughs) So, (laughs) speaking of wine... We are currently drinking the Louis M. Martini Cabernet Sauvignon, the 2018 year. I don't know if it's Louis M. Martini or Louis M. Martini. What's L-O-U-I-S with the... L-O-U-I-S. Like, it's either Louis or Louis, right? Yeah. I don't know which one either. I'm not sure. That's the same thing with, like, (laughs) Louis the Child and Louis the Child. I use those interchangeably. Just depending on how we're feeling that day. I think it's Louis, actually, though. Okay. Louis M. Martini. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's good know. so far. I'm in, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Agree to disagree. No, it is good. I like it. Cheers. Cheers. 
Awesome. Okay, so Dusty, today we are going to be talking about the Twitter files, if you've heard of those. I've heard a thing or two about those. A thing or two about them. Um, We're also going to be talking about Brittany Griner, since she just got released from a Russian prison. Big news this week. Big, 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 big news this week. And then, if we have time, we can wrap up with talking about the Balenciaga scandal. Does that sound good? Sounds like a plan. Okay, cool. So, let's just jump straight into it. You want to? Sure. Let's just start with an overview of really what's been released so far in the Twitter files. Mm -hmm. And then, I'd love to hear your thoughts on everything. And then we can jump into the specifics of Twitter and what our thoughts are about Twitter itself. So what all do you know so far about the Twitter files? It is the internal documents that Elon Musk has, I wouldn't say uncovered, but now he has access to now that he owns Twitter, releasing those to, I think it's just one journalist that kind of tweets out. I think there's been three so far. Okay about like some of the internal things that went on at Twitter. I think the first one was around Hunter Biden's laptop and the removal of tweets and banning of accounts based on what they're reporting based on that. What were the other ones? They've released four parts so far, and I think they're about to release a fifth one. From my understanding, part one was released by journalist Matt Taibbi. And yes. Yeah, his name sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and he outlined how senior Twitter execs were preventing the spread of the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop and mm-hmm. what the contents of that laptop were. And then part two was released by Barry Weiss. She used to work at the New York Times. Okay. And now she works for her own company. I need to honestly do more research on... Like freelance stuff? Kind of, but it's a, a company. She founded another company. It's called maybe the Free Press or something. Anyway, she's a pretty prestigious journalist as well, and she's actually more liberal than she is conservative. Okay. And so I think that's actually why Elon Musk gave it to her to report on. But she outlined how Twitter was shadow banning, or they were using the word visibility filtering. Yes. Yeah, they had the internal name for it yeah. called visibility filtering. I also thought it was really interesting. I think it was part of the Twitter files that had, if you work at Twitter and you go to someone's account, it has all the lists that they're added to. And there were those like, do not amplify or mm-hmm. visibility filtering type lists on them. There was one on there, Dan Bongino, I want to say. He was on a search blacklist, like a do not search list. So if you search for him on Twitter, you couldn't find him. That's so weird. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wonder what kind of list I'm on. You're probably fine because you're more left-leaning. <laughs> I'm also only tweet when I'm watching college football and drugs. So <laughs> <laughs> so you're harmless. <laughs> yeah, the harmless list. Yeah, yeah you're, you're not a threat. <laughs> yeah, but he's probably going to delete those later lists. <laughs> so that was part two. Three was released by Matt Taibbi again. And he outlined basically the beginning of when Twitter started censoring Trump when he was a president. And that was actually October of 2020. So before the November election through January 6, 2021. And then this reporter, Michael Schellenberger, he released yesterday, today's Sunday, the 11th. So he released part four yesterday, the 10th. And it outlined the actual removal of Trump from Twitter, the permanent suspension of his account on January 7th, 2021, in the lead up to that. So I've definitely seen the first three parts. I don't know that I got a chance to read part four yet. Okay. It's dense. There's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it really takes a lot to unpack all that went on. So I'm thinking maybe we start with part one and talk through that and then kind of go subsequently through part two, three, and four. 
Cool. Okay, so from my understanding of the summary of part one, Twitter essentially would receive direction from both the Trump White House and the Biden campaign to remove tweets that they didn't like. Mm -hmm. So both sides were doing it, but it wasn't exactly balanced because Twitter is a left-leaning company. And some stats that I pulled and that were included in the Twitter files, 96% of Twitter's political donations in 2018 went to Democrats. On the other side, conversely, 4% of those donations went to Republicans. Mm -hmm. 98% of those donations went to Democrats in 2020, and 99% of Twitter's political donations went to Democrats in 2021. And essentially, it was was kind of a game of who you know, and because there were more Democrat friends within Twitter at the time, their tweets and their requests were getting handled, quote-unquote, because that was a word they used. I saw the the response, and it just said handled, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much more of those sorts of tweets that the DNC and the Biden campaign didn't like were handled. Yeah. More so than Trump's tweets or what were coming from his camp that they wanted to get removed or even all around Republicans. So that was something that was interesting to me. Yeah. But it makes sense when people are biased that way. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you work in the Biden campaign and send an email to Twitter, it's going to get attention. It's just weird when you see it actually in text where it's just an email linking to a tweet, delete this. And the next person's like, okay, done. There's there may have been more conversations like involved on that that we don't get access to. But it's just weird when you see the actual email trail of what those conversations look like. Well, and then when the New York Post story was getting censored as heavily as it was, seeing a lot of people in leadership at Twitter internally through those emails and, you know, screenshots of them and whatever, saying like WTF, yeah, what are we doing to combat this? This is really bad. This is actually a potential infringement on free speech. Yeah. What are your thoughts there? Like, is this even legal? Was like kind of the... Is it constitutional? Yeah. I don't know. It it goes back to like, how do you regulate those social media areas, especially Twitter the most, because it's used so much as like a breaking news tool and expressing opinion tool, probably more so than your parents tagging you on pictures on Facebook or you posting pictures on Instagram or scrolling through TikTok. Like Twitter's used differently mm-hmm. than most of the other social media sites. And so nobody wants their tweets getting censored over political motivations, like whether it's left-leaning or right-leaning. It's just like, an, like a kind of icky feeling, especially now uh, a couple of months or, or years later when we see all the documentation associated with it. Like I was saying a minute ago, those lists that you get tagged on, it's like, I don't, if I was someone that had thousands and thousands of followers, I wouldn't want Twitter like adding me to these lists that I have no idea that I'm on. Or I wouldn't want people that I follow because I care about their opinion, like being on these lists that are now being hidden from me, you know, because of something they said or did. So I, I don't know. I don't like it. It just feels like Twitter was exercising so much more power without our knowledge than it should have been. It had no right to, and it still was. It acted like it didn't really care. Yeah, there's definitely like the transparency thing. Like it makes it worse that we didn't know about it. Yeah. And before we continue into part two, talking about those lists specifically, staying on the New York Post story, censoring and suppressing that story is it's kind of crazy to think about because there are people who said after that story broke and went viral after the election, Mm -hmm. there were people who said they voted for Biden that would have not voted for Biden had they known about that story. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there and that's where it gets dangerous, right? Is when it potentially influences the way people vote, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think the transparency thing is a big piece because if you're going to do that, okay, like at least let us see it. 
Right. I think it's Facebook that does like independent third party audit each year of content moderation and they release a big report on it. But I mean, even then you're finding out about stuff, you know, a year after the fact. But like the shadow banning phrase gets thrown around on Republican or conservative Twitter a lot. And I always thought it was a stupid word. And just an like, excuse yeah. for the lack of reach that they got. Yeah. And yeah. You're not being shadow banned. You're just being paranoid or the algorithm's just not reacting the way you want it to to your tweets like shut up and then yeah. fast forward here we are and you're literally you know have screenshots of people's accounts that are added to lists called shadow banning it makes a lot of the things that mostly conservatives complained about related to twitter valid here we are a couple of months or, or a year later but yeah the, the transparency piece i think was the biggest issue and so even jumping into part two since we're really talking i really do want to spend time on this list and the essential blacklists that were created secretly at a high level at Twitter that even other Twitter employees didn't really know about. From your perspective, since you are a little bit more left-leaning, how does all of this make you feel? What is going on in Dusty's head when he's reading stories about how people who complained about being shadow banned like conservatives were proved to have been right? Yeah, it's almost like a crap, y'all were right about that type of feeling. (laughs) And I'm not a big Elon Musk fan, so I don't like it when I have to agree with something Elon Musk does or says or give him credit for stuff. And so, you know, you see like the Twitter files tweet and it's something that Elon Musk is releasing through a reporter. And I'm like, I don't want to read that or want it to have anything that's going to be interesting in it. Then I start scrolling through it. I'm like, oh crap. Like, (laughs) so the stuff that I just brushed off as being stupid or paranoid or Republicans paranoid about big tech being so liberal. It's a lot of the, uh, you guys were right about some stuff, right? (laughs) Apparently based on the information that's being released. No, I appreciate that concession because a lot of people on the right who were complaining about feeling like their posts weren't getting that much reach or feeling like their voices weren't being amplified as much as they could and trying to get the word out for certain powers or corruption that needed to be checked. It's definitely vindicating. But at the same time, this all happened, has been happening over the last two years. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just that that content moderation place is such a complicated space to work in. You know, there's the very clear offensive or harassment tweets, and it's so easy to nip those in the bud, and no one's going to argue with those getting deleted. But then when you get into the political ones or breaking news or, I guess, the laptop type stuff, generally speaking, everyone left or right would err on the side of less moderation in that space is better. Yeah. Because then we get into situations like this where you find out what kind of moderation was done after the fact and it wasn't done transparently and it just creates so much less trust in the systems that we have and in how Twitter was ran before Elon Musk owned it. Yeah. You know, when you talk about a lack of trust in our institutions, this almost perpetuates that conspiracy theory type thought of there's this small group of people at the top of the institutional pyramids that are controlling the way that our society works. And stories like this are literally proving that because there are people like Vijaya Gaddy and Yul Roth who were executives, upper executives at Twitter who were highly progressive, who hated Trump, that made decisions, even when Jack Dorsey was out of office, Mm -hmm. that decided who was going to be censored on Twitter, what was going to be shadow banned, what lists certain conservative commentators would be on to de-amplify their reach. And it's alarming. Yeah. It's kind of mind-blowing. I think a lot of people are still pretty shocked about it, and there's still more information coming out. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I just don't really get it. I mean, you gave an example of that potentially influencing the way someone votes, but then we get into these situations where you find out about it 
after the fact and that's impacting the way people are going to vote too. And yeah. maybe not the way that Twitter wanted them to. And it's so I don't, I don't get the point of like suppressing information or accounts for politically motivated reasons, because then we end up here where no one trusts what's being done. Right. Well then that's when you see conspiracy theories run rampant because yeah. it, it breeds distrust. Yeah. And so people are left to their own devices to decide what their reality is. And when there's dishonesty, when there's lack of transparency, everybody is a little bit more on guard about what country we're actually living in, you know? And when our speech is being suppressed unknowingly, that's a very dangerous place to be in. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Twitter, you know, it's a, it's a private company and to a certain extent they can do what they want and ban who they want and amplifiers suppress who they want. But Twitter is so, goes so hand in hand with like free speech these days. So it's different. And I also think too, you could argue the same thing on the on the right. You know, if there's a story about Trump that went viral or it was something the public needed to know, conversely, if Twitter was more of a right-leaning company, it would still have the obligation to allow those sorts of stories mm-hmm. to reach as many people as it would regardless. Yeah. You know, so like the New York Post story with the Hunter Biden emails that were linking Biden's vice presidential influence to this energy company Burisma in Ukraine mm-hmm. is something that the public should have known about beforehand. Just like if something had happened with Trump, it should, you know, people should have known about that as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I agree. So I just think Twitter needs to be more of a public square yeah. at the very foundational level than trying to decide what gets moderated. Twitter executives don't have the right to suppress anybody's speech. Yeah. And I mean, I just think people expect a company like Twitter to have a certain level of impartiality. Is that a word? Yeah impartial itty uh, <laughs> and it's not good when they lose that because they lost that with the expectation for the past couple of years that twitter was left-leaning and you know now with the takeover by elon musk it's it's almost flipping the other way where people are starting to think that twitter is going to be more right-leaning but i think it'd be better for everyone if they were just in the middle and impartial and we didn't you know have to sit here and wonder if accounts are getting shadow banned or if you know i search for a user i can't get the, to them because they're on a list that that someone high up at twitter and and administration or a political campaign doesn't like. Yeah. So let me ask you then going back to Elon Musk, because you said you're not a big fan of his. Can you explain that a little more? Because he is he's not really all that right leaning. I think he's just a big proponent of free speech. I mean, I just think he's kind of a doofus sometimes about the stuff he does and says and tweets and it it, it annoys me. So you just find him annoying? (laughs) No, I, I definitely do find him annoying. It's just so he's done like some really impressive stuff with SpaceX, like blasting off rockets into space in a way that wasn't done before with Tesla and the electric vehicle thing. I just think just because he was really good at doing those two things doesn't automatically mean that he's really good at everything else, right? In my mind. So like the whole Elon Musk is going to fix Twitter. It's like Elon Musk has zero experience with a social media company. You know, he knows more than I do, but maybe it's not that I dislike Elon Musk as much as I dislike his fan base that just thinks he can fix anything or solve anything or like you more know, of that is, core right wing people on everything. And I don't even know if I call it right wing. I just call it like kind of like Tesla nerds. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'm just jealous that I don't have Tesla. It might be one of the two. <laughs> Those dang Tesla nerds. Thank God. But Elon no, it's Musk like, is... like the, the boring company thing that he does with drilling the tunnels. Like there's tons of stories of cities that have signed contracts with him to come in and dig and build these tunnels that are going to change the way we like transport across the globe. And none of that has happened. It's been years and years. Literally, there's a couple of different cities where it's like, yeah, we signed the contract. We told him 
you can start drilling whenever here's all your permits and like two years later they still haven't drilled stuff like that where it's like elon musk can change the way we travel through the drilling company and his fan base just assumes that he can and we haven't really seen that stuff like that annoys me <laughs> his lack of follow-through over long periods of time yeah I, yeah i mean it's just i think we should take or his fan base should take some of the stuff he says with a grain of salt more more so than, than they always do but then he does other things like his company starlink that literally gave yeah. ukraine internet yeah, like that's really cool. I don't know. Maybe I'm in the wrong here. And because he, I mean, we are listing off some pretty incredible things that he's done. But if he could be less annoying about it, I'd probably like him a little bit more. I mean, or maybe if I had a Tesla, I'd like it more. I don't know. Fair point. You should listen to the episode we did with Alex Bryan because uh-huh. we talked, we had a whole conversation about Elon Musk and all of his different companies and everything. It's, it was really interesting. But Alex is kind of in the same camp you are. He doesn't like the way. Elon Musk goes about things. Yeah, and maybe that's the best way to describe it. Yeah, Yeah, which is fine. I understand that. But it's interesting just because I feel like a lot of people who lean left tend to dislike Elon Musk. But until probably 2020, he was voting Democrat. I don't even think he voted for Trump in 2016. I mean, he's the guy that is like the poster child for trying to move off of fossil fuels for, for transportation, right? That's not a conservative mission whatsoever. So yeah, I I actually believe Elon Musk when he says he doesn't lean hard one way or the other and is pretty moderate. I actually believe him there. Um, It's just the way he goes about telling us that he's that gets on my nerves. That's fair. But he's also freaking brilliant. And he's kind of the richest man in the world at the same time. Not as of this week. I thought he saw Forbes say that he dropped down to like number two or something. Hopefully that that's accurate. I did see that on Twitter that Forbes reported that, but those <laughs> things fluctuate so much. I'm sure he'll be back to number one soon. No, I mean, it will be really interesting to see what Elon Musk does at Twitter. I think the Twitter files, and again, it's just the way it's delivered is obnoxious to me, but the, like the, I think that was good that we got some transparency yeah. into that process. Um, hopefully he's transparent with the way that he has Twitter moderate. What do you mean the way the Twitter files were delivered was obnoxious to you? At calling them the Twitter files was st- <laughs> obnoxious to me. You felt like it was um, cringy. <laughs> yeah, a little bit cringy. And, you know, it's it's released in this big Twitter thread through exclusive reporter type thing. It's just not the normal way that stories like that are broken. Can and, I offer a counterpoint? Yeah, sure. I think the way, the reason why they've been released in the way they are, first by the journalist, he's picking more in the middle moderate journalists because i don't think they alienate one side or the other as much as like say tucker carlson or don lemon or someone like that for sure that's fair and i think he's also chosen to release them exclusively on twitter first because there's it doesn't give it a right-leaning perspective or a left-leaning perspective because he gave it exclusively to a certain publication yeah and you're driving more traffic to the site well yeah there's a Obvious benefit, uh, right. business benefit <laughs> in using Twitter to release your breaking information. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I'm just bitter at Elon Musk for no reason, I guess. <laughs> um, there's an article I read a while back, and it was an opinion piece, but it was about kind of some of the same things that I'm saying about Elon Musk, about like his follow through with some of his promises and the assumption that, you know, he can just fix certain things because he's Elon Musk. It was an article kind of bashing on that. I'll see if I can find it because I want to reread it again and just see if I feel the same way about everything that's said in there. We can go through it on Um, this podcast and just walk through it together. But it was at the time when I read it, I was like, yes, 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 I agree with all of this. But (laughs) I'll have to go back and, and look at it and see if I agree with all of it. But yeah, I'm not the biggest Elon Musk fan, but I do think at the end of the day, the Twitter files that those 
getting released was a, a good thing for everyone. And I'm, I'm very interested to see how Elon Musk does with Twitter, like what he decides to do with it and where that company is a year from now, two years from now, three years from now will be really interesting. I think the landscape of Twitter is going to look drastically different than it does today because of these Twitter files getting released. So yeah. jumping into a sort of a summary of part three. Mm-hmm. So part two, talking about certain accounts getting shadow banned and being on certain blacklists. That was released by Barry Weiss, who used to be a New York Times reporter. Part three was released by the same reporter who released part one, Matt Taibbi. And that actually outlines how Twitter started censoring Trump's tweets in October of 2020. And then it also documents that Yoel Roth was regularly meeting with the government, with the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and the director of national intelligence. Mm-hmm. They were in lockstep the entire time having yeah. meetings, talking about Twitter and any sort of involvement Twitter may have had in the 2020 election. Yeah. And maybe the opportunity to censor Trump or how to keep his tweets from reaching as many people as there were. And it also talked about the possibility of censoring or banning official government accounts after even potentially censoring Trump. Because at this point, they hadn't censored him yet. Mm-hmm. And I, one thing I did want to talk to you about, have you, did you study psychology in school ever? Sure. Do you remember, I think it's called the foot in the door phenomenon? No. So it's the idea that, and I honestly should probably just Google it, <laughs> to read off from study.com. It's a psychological compliance strategy that utilizes asking another person for small requests first to make them comply with larger requests eventually. By persuading another individual to carry out or complete a small task, they will become more likely to complete a larger task later on because they've changed the perception of themselves to become more positive. So the idea of getting your foot in the door, you're already there. So it's okay to cross the threshold a little bit more. Yeah. And then you can go a little bit farther. Yeah. And when I was reading these Twitter files, it reminded me of that phenomenon yeah. because it started with the idea all these left-leaning people who were working at Twitter are really upset and frustrated with somebody like Trump. At some point, there was a breaking point for many employees at Twitter uh-huh. and the sentiment started to grow trying to figure out, okay, how can we do a little bit to curb his reach? How can we do a little bit to yeah. keep him contained on Twitter since we do still have that within our within our control and you know they started censoring him and then they started censoring other people putting more people on blacklist and shadow banning them and then created this upper management secret committee who decided who they were going to shadow ban and who they weren't and they eventually started changing their policy around to fit how they could eventually ban Trump and other conservatives too. So what are your, what are your thoughts there? It's just wild. There was a a time way back when where the left was really upset about Trump blocking people from his Twitter account and saying that's a violation of free speech because now they don't have access to things that the president are saying. So Trump isn't allowed to block anyone. It's just wild how we went from that to taking Trump completely off Twitter. Like those are to complete opposite ends of the yeah. spectrum. And I, I don't know that I agreed with, with removing Trump from Twitter when that happened. And I think there's probably a lot of left-leaning or moderate people that didn't agree with that decision either. One, he says a lot of stuff that is really entertaining and funny. Uh, 
So, but two, it, it's once you cross that line, then we're having conversations like we are now. And I thought the, the foot in the door analogy was really good because, you know, it can start off as something really small and innocent. Like, hey, we've donated a lot of money to you. I'm going to send you an email. Take a look at this tweet. We have a really good reason for it to be removed. And then we do that. And then a couple months later, you're at the point where they're just replying in that email thread with tweets and they're getting deleted without you know, any clear justification. It's like once you start down that level of content moderation, it's hard to rope it back. And it, it and especially if you're doing it without transparency, that's when you lose the the public trust. Twitter should should not be in the content moderation game like that, in my personal opinion. And if they are, it should be more transparent. I should say, I agree with you on that 100%. They should not be in the content moderation game. Twitter should stay a public square. And there, there should be, you know, there should be, I think the example that I gave with Facebook, and hopefully I'm right on that example, is let's have a, a third party report get released every year. Hey, we removed 7 million accounts or tweets this year. 5 million we thought were automated and bots and 2 million came from the administration. And these were the underlying reasons why that that should be information that's available to the public. Yep, definitely. The scariest thing is once Twitter knew that they were going to permanently ban Trump, well, two scary things. Leading up to that, they readjusted their policy to permanently ban him because they knew that the tweets that he sent on January 6th encouraging his fans to go and peacefully protest and respect law and order at the Capitol. I mean, when you tell somebody peacefully protest and respect the police... You can't exactly ban somebody for inciting violence when you say explicitly that. And so they tried to get him on the context around his tweets Mm -hmm. and the history of his other tweets because he was kind of mean and funny at the same time and exaggerated and all that stuff within the tweets that he would send. And so once you had them trying to pin him on context and then start to talk about, oh, well, we can then ban the White House account and the POTUS account on Twitter. Those are official government accounts. Who has the power to ban those accounts? To say the president of the United States, the official account of the president of the United States, POTUS, can't tweet on Twitter anymore. But like who wins when those get, like who won when Trump got banned? What do you mean? When Trump gets banned, why is the left like, oh, we won. You got an account. I, I don't get. I think because of the significance that Twitter holds, you know, it is, you, like you said, it is a private company, but it is the public square. The main conversations that we have with each other nationally and globally happen on Twitter. Yeah. So the way that we communicate with each other on a global scale is Twitter versus like, you know, literally the town public square way back when. And so when you take away a medium for the official account of the president of the United States to communicate with people, that to me blows my mind. I think it was even Emily Ratajkowski that tweeted after the at real Donald Trump account got removed that Twitter has more power than the president of the United States. Yeah. She came out and said that. And I don't want anybody to get confused. They didn't end up actually banning the official White House and at POTUS accounts on Twitter, but they talked about There's it. discussion around it. Mm-hmm. And they even said we would definitely reinstate those when the new administration came in. And more than likely, like unless absolutely necessary, we would never ban those yeah. with Biden coming in. Yeah. I just think that's wild that people like a handful of executives at Twitter held that much power. Yeah, I agree. So I want to get into part four before we move on. So part four of the Twitter files talks about what we've been talking about already, how Twitter eventually abandoned their policy related to public interest figures. So because... 
of global leaders who may have a Twitter account. Twitter was a little bit more flexible with allowing those accounts to say certain things because of the interest that the public had to know what those tweets were about. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be, well, I mean, there was like the Ayatollah in Iran that still had his account or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So people who do say things that are actually threatening to American democracy were still allowed to have a Twitter account because of the interest that the public had in those words. So they changed that policy with Trump so that they could justify removing him. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was saying. They wanted to ban him not just on a specific tweet, but around the context of it. And it was because Twitter faced a lot of pressure from employees as well as external activists to ban his account. So they were, it was literally like a pressure cooker of a situation. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I haven't read part four, but I think it was really easy to see all of that external pressure at the time when we were having discussions about removing Trump's account and, you know, from someone that didn't have any inside knowledge into Twitter and like what was going on internally, it felt like they didn't want to remove the account. And then eventually they did it because of external pressure. And at the time, from someone that just doesn't really care whether or not Trump has a Twitter at the time, it was <laughs> it was kind of like, oh, wow, Twitter actually like gave in to, to all of that pressure. Why did they do that? So yeah, but again, I, the argument before that, if Iran tweets death to America versus some other person tweets it, and nobody, we can remove that tweet. But if Iran tweets it, the public has a right to that knowledge and Twitter isn't going to decide what Iran can and can't tweet to mm-hmm. a certain extent. Right. There should be a more objective set of rules in that regard then. I've always wondered if all of the big social media companies almost formed a a separate company or organization or joint group that would decide, set rules across Facebook, Instagram, like it applies everywhere on what can be deleted, what can't be deleted. They would actually review like appeals when things are deleted. And then you could have at least all of the big social media companies on agreement on what can stay and what can't get stayed. And and you would have some level of that impartiality because it's being done by a separate organization. But well, I think that's what Congress was trying to do. Yeah. You know, with uh, with Section 230. Is Section 230 like the uh, you can't hold people responsible for what is posted on their websites. So it basically says that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Yeah. So like we're not going to hold Twitter accountable for things that a user on Twitter is saying. Right. And I think there's been a lot of debate back and forth about whether or not social media companies are allowed protections under that when they moderate it. Yeah, I kind of see the argument. So like when Twitter's choosing to moderate, they're giving up their right to be protected under that idea. Yes. So either they act as a objective third party where they're just publishing information or they have their own voice indirectly. Yeah. That's an interesting argument. And so that being said, if they want to have protections under this law, then they should sincerely and explicitly act as the public square. And that is it. Period. Dot. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like certain levels of harassment or violence that can be removed off Twitter, but like none of that should be political. Of course. Well, I mean, when you have actual hate speech. Yeah. You know, like I tweeted at Dusty, I'm going to come, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. No, that needs to be taken off. Yeah. But like 90% of us all agree on what that is and isn't. Yes. And when there's a gray area, you probably leave it up. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. No, I think, I think most people would agree with that. I just don't understand why it's gotten so complicated. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) I love how many things we agree about. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I mean. Well, I just think at the end of the day, when two people across the aisle are watching different news outlets or paying attention to news from different sources, there's a different narrative that gets told to me and a different narrative that gets told to you. But yeah. at the end of the day, when we sit down and talk about it, we actually agree on some fundamental things. Well, and it's just so wild that there are a lot of things that people that are middle left and middle right can agree on at the end of the day. And that gets drowned out by the people that won't agree on anything and are either further left or further right. And then none of the stuff that people actually agree on gets done because it's drowned out by the more extreme views. And it's all noise and it's it's theatrics. I think a lot of the issues that I see right now in politics, it's just so performative. Well, and I mean, this isn't a good source of information, but KFC Barstool, do you know who that guy is? Maybe. He does like the little one minute news updates on Twitter, Instagram, but his whole thing was like for years, the left and the right have been complaining that all of this content moderation has been going on. And now y'all are getting all of the information that actually happened and now what like no one's even talking he was like what the only reason y'all cared is because the, the theatrics and the drama and yep. you know all of that stuff like you didn't actually care at the end of the day which is kind of what i was getting back to with when trump gets banned in my head for a second i'm like oh cool i win and i'm like why like i really don't care at the end of the day this doesn't really feel like a win for me but you just get into like the bickering and the competitiveness and the theatrics and the drama of it and that like drowns out all of the rational conversation yeah and the tribalism yeah it's like us versus them all the time and i agree with you it's funny when you know obviously you know that i'm pro-life and so when the dobbs decision came down i was happy about that ruling but i also didn't feel like i won either it felt much more stressful than I'd like to admit. Yeah. I knew how frustrated everybody else who opposed that decision really did feel. Yeah. And it it really just felt worse. I, I literally felt more stressed out. Yeah, yeah, that's that's totally fair. So it's just interesting that the two sides typically do pit us against each other. And it is theatrics, it is drama, it is performative. And at the end of the day, that KFC Barstool guy saying, these Twitter files are coming out. It's completely objective reporting. It is literally just facts and what happened. Yeah. And nobody's talking about it. Yeah. Nobody, it's just a story. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, well, now what? We've talked about it for so long, and now we have proof that it happened, and it's not as big of a story as you would think it would be. But it was more fun to talk about it when it was a little conspiracy, and like we didn't know if it was actually true or not. It was like gossip almost. Yeah. Yeah, there's a gossip <laughs> aspect to it, for sure. A hundred percent. Well, you know that there's going to be more coming out. More Twitter files are set to come out. How many of them are going to be? Do we I, know? I don't even know. I think there's plenty more to yeah, unload. Sure. And you know what? I hope that with all of these, something does get done to remedy this entire thing. You know, guidelines and laws put in place to keep a place like Twitter objective. Yeah. Because that is the way that we all talk to each other in this digital world. Yeah. Or complain about football games. Or complain about football games if you're dusty. Yeah. (laughs) Or like one-liner dad jokes. Twitter's a great place for a lot of things. It is. Yeah. So why are we going to censor your one-liner dad jokes? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so I think we've talked through Twitter pretty well and the Twitter files. Is there anything that you want to add before we jump into Brittany Griner? No, I mean, I think at the end of the day, most people kind of agree with what we were talking about. And the Twitter files are interesting. At one point, I hope, all of the information documentation associated with the 
with the Twitter files can get dumped, so to speak, because I agree with what you said about like Elon Musk doing different journalists having releasing it and trying to keep it impartial and like hitting journalists that are conservative or liberal or have traditionally worked for a conservative or liberal news station. But at the end of the day, like Elon Musk is deciding what gets released. So there is a level of Elon can drive the context of what he would like to be released or how he would like it to be portrayed to a certain extent. So I do hope at one point in time, it doesn't have to be right now, but just eventually we get to where the information or the documentation with that is more delivered as like a dump. And then journalists from both sides can can come through it and see if there's additional context that needs to be understood or if there's other storylines that haven't been reported on too. So hopefully we get to that point, but who knows? I'd like to believe that because Elon Musk is really more in the middle than he seems to be right now, he seems to be leaning more right. Mm-hmm. But with his voting history and everything that he stood for, I really do hope that it's more about him wanting to protect the right of free speech. He said, you know, if we don't have free speech, then we're just opening ourselves up to tyranny forever. Yeah, I agree with him on that. So I'm hoping that, you know, he does the right thing by those principles. And if more comes out, we can, of course, come back and talk about yeah. it. And hopefully he can do it in a little bit of a less obnoxious way <laughs> or, or an entertaining way. One of the two. <laughs> I find him entertaining. (laughs) I find him annoying, but he does have good points sometimes. And he has done some really impressive things. (laughs) I appreciate that concession. (laughs) Okay, so that really wraps it up for Twitter. Thank you for listening to part one of the Wine and Politics podcast with Dusty, where we deep dive into the Twitter files. If you liked this episode, please give us five stars, leave a review, or even better, share it with a friend. Be on the lookout for part two, (laughs) y'all.